Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. And do you remember when you were like in high school and you could sleep for like 13 hours straight? (laughs) Weren't those the days? And now I I think, boy, if you get a nice solid five, six hours in a row, you're doing great. I don't know what kind of a sleeper you are. I know a lot of people suffer with sleeplessness and they end up uh, being awake at night wondering, how do I get back to sleep? Or why did it take me so long to get to sleep? Now, we're not specifically going to give you too many tips on how to sleep uh, tonight, but we are going to talk about seeking God through sleeplessness. My guest is Scott Hubbard. He's the editor and uh, author at DesiringGod.org. And Scott, you know, is uh, not only a very gifted writer and communicator, but he's an awfully nice guy who apparently doesn't always get a good night's sleep. Scott, welcome. (laughs) Is that true? Yeah. Uh, You know, I went through a season, especially, I know this is like... A lot of people go through a lot worse than this, but this was this was new for me. A season within the last year, where especially for a, a maybe four months or so, was getting really poor sleep, and we just have nights where I might fall asleep right away and then wake up and be up for you know five hours or something like that. Mm-hmm. So that's a long time. Yeah, disruptive enough, especially with little kids, and uh, yeah, it, it made an impact in life. As, as you can imagine. So, yeah, several months stretch of that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You hear things sometimes that kind of, you think, well, I haven't thought about that in a long time. I was uh, in a restaurant, I overheard these two college students, they had their books out and they were talking about studying for a test and one said to the other that he had recently pulled an all-nighter. Yeah. And I oh, thought, boy, pulling an, all that, an all-nighter means I didn't get up to go to the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> you know, 5 a.m. rolls around and I go, I made it. That's an all-nighter. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, I yeah, I can remember when I did, <laughs> did all-nighters willingly, exactly. voluntarily. Yeah, it's a different world. Exactly. You really don't appreciate a good night's sleep until it's gone. <laughs> no, you don't. It's one of those things. Yeah, I, mm-hmm. just the sleeplessness, the season of it made me realize, my word, how did I take this thing for granted? <laughs> you know, That's such it's, a good point, Scott. Yeah. yeah, just a normal night of sleep, even... <laughs> Even just, you know, yeah. seven-hour <laughs> normal <laughs> night of sleep yeah. feels like uh, just something unspeakably precious when you don't have it. Yeah, now, um, you wrote an article at DesiringGod.org called Mercies at Midnight, Seeking God Through Sleeplessness, and I want to go through some of this article. But I also want to say, what is your default when it's one fifteen in the morning and you're up and you think, uh-oh, now what? Yeah, default yep. is probably like a lot of other people's default my mind runs to the day before, mind runs to the next day. Okay. Uh, just, you know, can can think about stuff that happened, stuff that didn't happen. I can start feeling a kind of rising anxiety about not being able to sleep. Uh, can turn immediately to all the various tips and tricks and things to try to get back to sleep, counting and, and whatever it might mm-hmm. be. Um, and... Ultimately, can 
just have this kind of rising sense of dread of how tired I'm going to be the next day. So that, that's, the, that's the default. That's the unsanctified, left-to-myself kind of response. Yeah. And it made me, you know, left me wondering, okay, there's probably a better way to do this. Yeah, let's talk about that way. Yeah, well, probably if people think about the Bible and sleep, one of the first places they're going to go is Psalm 127, which is a comfortable, comfortable word about sleep, namely that God gives to his beloved sleep. It's in vain that you rise early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for the Lord gives to his beloved sleep. <laughs> and in, in in sleeplessness, that kind of verse can uh, feel not so helpful. <laughs> okay, what, what do you do when the Lord takes from his beloved sleep? Mm, interesting. And so it sent me just searching, especially throughout the Psalms, on what they had to say about sleep. And it turns out they have a whole whole lot to say about sleep. And what was most surprising to me is that they have a lot to say about sleeplessness and most of it is positive. That was surprising because mm. that wasn't my, as I just talked about a few minutes ago, that wasn't my default experience of sleeplessness. Mm-hmm. It wasn't as a positive thing. And yet the psalmists often found something in sleeplessness that was worth celebrating, worth singing about, not the sleeplessness itself, but what they found in it. Hmm. Scott Hubbard is our sleeplessness coach today, and we're going to be learning all kinds of things about what to do when we are sleepless and how it may be a gift that God is giving uh, to you in that moment. Yeah, yeah, that's right. There, It seems like, so on the one hand, I think it's helpful to remember that the psalmists too are people. They aren't superhumans. Right. And so they needed seven or eight hours of, of sleep a night to function well. No doubt they would counsel sleepless people to pray that God would give sleep and to do all the reasonable things within their power to cultivate sleep. So I think that kind of thing is totally right. But Say you're you've 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 done what you can, you know, you've done the exercise stuff, you've done the technology stuff, you've prayed before you went to sleep, asking the Lord to give a good night of rest, and and still at eleven, twelve, one, you find yourself just staring up at the ceiling. It's there that I think the psalmists can can help us with the ways that they approached that kind of sleeplessness. Mm-hmm. Scott Hubbard, you say in your article, by faith the psalmist discovered that sleeplessness could become a sanctuary adorned with the glory and goodness of God. Yeah. And that no hour was too early or too late to pray and praise and meditate. Yep, that's right. Psalm 119 talks about, I anticipate the night watches so that I may meditate on your word. So approaching Nighttime, the psalmist said that, and then the psalmist also said, I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. Rising before dawn, that, that's, um, you know, <laughs> that's a kind of sleeplessness, getting up before the sun is up. But the first one is even more striking. I anticipate the night watches. The night watches are the ways that the Hebrew people would talk about the various, you know, they would divide the night up into, into various watches, you know, stretches of these hours. I anticipate the middle of the night is what he's saying. Interesting. That I may meditate on your word. He, mm-hmm. he looked ahead to the possibility of sleeplessness. And he knew that even if the night watches should find him awake, there was going to be something there to do, a, a, a God to meet and meditate upon. That was a precious time. Yeah, that's a, right. It was a time of being with the Lord. That's right. Yeah. And probably the, the most, the most um, 
exuberant testimony comes from David in Psalm 63, where he says, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. So there you go. There's those night watches again. Wow. My soul will be satisfied in the middle of the night. I haven't really thought about this very much, Scott. This is really interesting. Yeah, it's one of those things that you, you can kind of miss, and then you poke open the door, and it, it swings wide open. Yeah. Psalms talk about it a lot. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about some things we can do, like declare God's sovereignty over nighttime. Yeah. So this is maybe, at the start, going to sound somewhat somewhat basic, but it proved to be a great help to me to say some simple things that psalmists would sometimes say, like Psalm 74, 16, yours is the night. Yours is the night. Because in the midst of sleeplessness, the night can feel totally out of control. It can feel kind of like a land of chaos. It's certainly out of our control. We know that much. Mm -hmm. Those who have tried to fall asleep and you just cannot. Nighttime feels totally out of our control because it is. We can also assume in our default mode, not Explicitly, we wouldn't say this, but we can kind of act as if it's outside of God's control too, as if the the night does not belong to him. Right. And his sovereignty extends over daytime, but not over nighttime, not over, not over sleeplessness. And yet the psalmists were really good Bible readers. And so they knew Genesis and they knew that the Lord made not only the, the sun, but he made the moon. He made not only the daytime, but he made the nighttime. That when he led Israel out of Egypt, he led them not only with a pillar of cloud by day, but with fire by night, and that the night, just as much as the day, belonged to him. And so they had this sort of declaration of the Lord's kingship over the nighttime hours that would say, this isn't a time of meaninglessness, and my sleeplessness certainly isn't meaningless, because the nighttime belongs to the Lord, and therefore, instead of just fretting about the sleep that I'm missing, I can begin to trace his hand in the darkness. Mm. There was some author, Scott, that said, you don't pursue sleep, it pursues you. (laughs) I think that was maybe C.S. Lewis or somebody, which is so true. Yeah, Because sometimes you'll you'll wake up at two in the morning and you think, well, I've got to get up at six for a breakfast meeting or something. You think... I have to get to sleep right now. Yeah, so I get it for. <laughs> no, no, it it's turns counterproductive. Out it is. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's one of those practical things. You know, you 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 realize the more I look at the clock, <laughs> the less this is helping. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so declare is uh, declare God's sovereignty over nighttime. I think we'll take a pause there and come back uh, with uh, Scott Hubbard. He is uh, an author and editor over at DesiringGod.org. We're talking about sleeplessness. I have a feeling many of you are thinking, I'm glad I tuned in today because this is helpful. We'll be right back. Hi there and welcome. If you are a new listener, we want to officially welcome you with a free welcome packet gift. Request yours today at MyFaithRadio.com. Scott Hubbard and I are just back from our 90-second nap. You got to get sleep when you can get it. (laughs) Don't you think, Scott? Yeah, absolutely. Because if you're not getting it it in the middle of the night, you got to get it whenever you can. 
Yep. Big fan 90 of 90 seconds nap. here, two minutes there. Eggs. You just kind of kind of fill in. Exactly. But as we're talking about sleeplessness, and there is an intention uh, that God has for us in the middle of the night, and we can take full advantage of it. And Scott, you say, uh, according to Psalm 16, uh, verse 7, that we should search our heart at this time. Yeah, this was another one of those surprises. Uh, I think I knew a little bit of this going into studying this topic in the Psalms, but two main categories for, for searching your heart. The the first one maybe was the one I perhaps expected a little bit more. Psalm 32, David talks about how when he kept silent about his sin, day and night, the hand of the Lord was heavy upon him. <laughs> so day and night. The Lord took some of his sleep in order to press down upon his soul and bring him to a point where he was no longer trying to cover up his own sin, but would confess it to the Lord and allow the Lord to cover it for him by uh, his own mercy. And by now we know by the blood of his son. And so uh, one of the categories for sleeplessness throughout the Psalms is that it comes as a response to unconfessed sin. And I know that this is one of those categories that we have to be so careful with whenever you try to correlate suffering, and I would put sleeplessness in, under that category as some kind of suffering, some version of it. Whenever you try to correlate suffering with sin, it can get dangerous because that, that was the issue that Job's friends had, right? When they were saying, oh yeah, Job, you're, you're suffering because of your own sin. And yet it's also a biblical category that's at least worth pondering and bringing our hearts before the Lord to say, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me. Is this sleeplessness for something that I am trying to hide from you? And then (laughs) the promise in Psalm 32 is David says, you know, that he confessed his sin to the Lord and the Lord, when David stopped trying to cover his sin, the Lord himself covered it gladly, willingly, readily. Mm Mm-hmm. And the heavy hand of the Lord was no longer upon him by night. So that's one of the categories for sleeplessness that is worth searching our hearts for. Is is God trying to reveal anything I'm trying to hide from him? But Scott, you also say we should not over-spiritualize sleeplessness or under-spiritualize it. Yeah, and this is going to be a danger person to person. Yeah, Some people are going to be prone to over-spiritualize sleeplessness. You're going to have a sleepless night and you're going to think that it must be for some specific spiritual purpose. Whereas it could be a sign that your technology habits need to change or Mm -hmm. your exercise habits need to change or diet habits need to change or those kinds of things, which is still linked to spiritual matters, but it's, it's, we're trying to make it too spiritual, Mm -hmm. but then there are others of us. And my guess would be that most of us would fall into this category that perhaps we under-spiritualize sleeplessness. And when sleeplessness comes, we, we go almost immediately to the physical remedy. And this is certainly my case. Uh, when sleeplessness comes to me, my default is not to assume that there's something the Lord has to teach me in it, mm-hmm. but instead it's just a physical problem to solve physically. And so, or mentally, a mental problem to solve mentally, whatever mm-hmm. it might be, you know, so I'm going to get my mind into a certain place or I'm going to take a sleeping pill or that kind of thing. And verses like Psalm 32 or Psalm 16, 7, just remind me to pause and say, okay, well, maybe there's more, <laughs> maybe there's more going on here. Yeah. Have you not l- listened to my podcast in the middle of the night? Cause that'll, <laughs> that'll knock you right out. 
Seriously. Well, okay. I, I'm going to have to try that. Maybe I'll, yeah. And send me a pizza coupon or something. I mean, it's worth <laughs> something, right? Yeah, that's right. All right. Um, let's talk a little bit about meditating on God's word and his works when we are sleepless. What can we know about how important that is? Yeah. If there is one bridge between my typical experience of sleeplessness and between the positive things that the psalmists themselves say about sleeplessness, then meditation would be the bridge. And I don't know how familiar people are with the idea of meditation. Meditation is a little bit different from simple Bible reading. Mm -hmm. If we could talk about Bible reading, here's an image that I like to use. If Bible reading is walking down the hallway of God's Word, then meditation is stepping into some of its rooms. Or if Bible reading is looking up at the night sky, then meditation is putting a telescope to your eye and looking at a specific star. Okay. So in meditation, what we do is we pause and linger and ponder over some word that God has spoken, thinking about it clearly, and then feeling it deeply in the process. And that's what David says that he did in Psalm 63. My soul will be satisfied when I remember you upon my bed and meditate upon you in the watches of the night. When David talks about meditating upon God in the watches of the night, he doesn't simply mean um, having thoughts about God pass through his mind. Mm-hmm. He's talking about, you know, Psalm 1 begins with this, blessed is the man who meditates upon the law of the Lord day and night. It's this more focused, more concerted, um, it requires some effort and intention, but it is setting something that God has said before you in your mind's eye and not letting it go, but looking at it from these various angles and pressing it down into the into the heart. Mm-hmm. And the psalmists do this all over the place. That's what they're doing often in sleeplessness is they are meditating. And Asaph, he fastened his mind on the deeds of the Lord, didn't he? Yeah, so they give various categories. If you just look at what did the psalmist meditate upon? Mm-hmm. One of the categories would be the deeds of the Lord. Psalm 77 is this is a psalm of sleeplessness. It's a psalm of deep trouble. And Asaph can't stop thinking about his own present circumstances. They are so troublesome to him that they are keeping him awake. And then come the middle of the psalm, what Asaph does is he tells himself, I will remember the deeds of the Lord, your wonders of old. And he forces his mind to go back and tell the story of the Exodus. So he remembers the deeds of the Lord, and not just in the abstract, not just in a general way, but he remembers the Exodus in Mm -hmm. particular. And he walks his own heart through that as a way, not only of, not simply of getting to sleep, but as a way of remedying the kind of agitation that was keeping him awake. Mm -hmm. What about, Scott, you talk about recalling past prayer, past prayers that were answered and just assuring assuring yourself that the God who helped you then will, will again help you now and tomorrow. Yeah. So that that's a category from David in Psalm 63. He says uh, that one of the things he was remembering is how y- you have been my help. He says to God, that is one of the things he was meditating upon on his bed that gave him satisfaction in his soul. He was remembering, you have been my help. And so one of the things we can meditate on in the middle of the night is how the Lord has been our help in times past. 
how he has proved himself faithful in specific situations, how he first called us to himself when we weren't looking for him. And one of the things that that can do is then assure us that, yes, he's being faithful to me now, he is being my help right now, and he will be tomorrow morning when I feel exhausted. Mm -hmm. And you're a work in progress, aren't you? Absolutely. (laughs) I mean, you're a student that is trying to embrace these beautiful psalms and make it your story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I still, you know, my mind runs in a hundred different directions when I'm sleepless. Mm -hmm. And I have to come back and begin where where we started, which is to say, okay, no, yours is the night, Lord. (laughs) This moment belongs to you. Midnight belongs to you. And then go from there. I like that. I love this line, Scott, from your article. I long for sleeplessness to become a sanctuary, my pillow, a place of prayer and praise. Yeah. If the psalmists are to be trusted, which they are, Mm -hmm. then that is possible for us. Our sleeplessness can become a sanctuary, namely a place where we meet with our God and our pillows can become a place of prayer and praise. And prayer is the, is the necessary follow-up to meditation. That's one of the things the psalmists often followed up meditation with is not only thinking about what the Lord has said, what the Lord has done, but then responding to him in prayer. And God can do that for us. Mm -hmm. Scott, can you give us a little peek into what uh, meditation might look like for you? Yeah. Like, let's say the last couple of nights you were up, you were meditating. What were you meditating on and how long did you meditate on it? My go-to for meditation is something that I have memorized. Oh, nice. Something, so memorization, scripture memory and meditation often go together. Mm -hmm. And usually my go-to thing for meditating will be recalling something I've memorized. So some, some years ago when my wife and I were engaged we we memorized Isaiah 40 together comfort comfort my people says your god and that's that's that chapter it's the chapter that ends with um how even youths shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted but they who wait for the lord shall renew their strength so i'll just walk through that chapter and and sometimes just go verse by verse until i get through the whole thing sometimes we'll hit upon something that i want to think about more and press into and so I'll do that. And sometimes I realize in the morning that I fell asleep halfway through. <laughs> uh, other times I get through the whole thing and uh, it didn't help me to sleep. But what it can do is to help me in my sleeplessness, mm-hmm. to fix my mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, not anxieties from the past, not anxieties for the present, but upon the Lord who is my comfort and my mm-hmm. help. That's beautiful, Scott Hubbard. Thank you for sharing this. I also am curious about your your habits do you treat sleep with that kind of discipline where you say i pretty much want to go to bed at nine o'clock every night yeah Uh, and i I mean that so tv's off ipads off computers are down everything is i'm ready for bed in the midst of when i was struggling the most i really there did come a point where i thought okay i need to take some more drastic action because it's affecting life so much and so yeah one of the things i did was that was uh just figure out when do i need to go to bed and do that as much as I could every single night. That's smart. Even more so in the morning, wake up at the same time. That's smart. Thank you, Scott Hubbard, for being here. Mm -hmm. My pleasure. Uh, Thanks, Bill. You can always head over to desiringgod.org and Google Scott Hubbard. You will see all of his writing. It's all really good. Um, He's always uh, a very welcome voice here on Faith Radio and on the afternoon show. And again, uh, Scott Hubbard, desiringgod.org. We're going to take a break and we're going to learn about humility next. Uh, 
I'm, I can't wait. We'll be right back. Back to the show. I love meeting new people. I can't wait to have a conversation about humility. Uh, it's something I know that we all have dealt with, and I don't know how well we've all processed um, cultivating humility after humiliation. That's the subtitle of a book uh, by my next guest, uh, Pat Nemers, who is from the great state of Iowa, and he is a senior pastor at Sailorsville and also a friend of Dave St. John, who works here at Faith. Uh, radio at the KTIS. Pat, welcome. Thanks, Bill. Glad, glad to be with you. I thought the introduction was going well up until the Dave St. John part, but, you know, really. <laughs> I appreciate Dave. He's a good friend, as you mentioned. Yeah, he is. So I always love, you know, when I sit down to someone at a dinner party and I turn and I say, so so what do you do? I always love what a person would say. And you being a, a, a gifted communicator and pastor, how would you frame your how would you how would you answer that question for myself? Yeah. Well, and I thought we were still talking about Dave St. John. Nah, no, no, we've we've skipped <laughs> we've skipped way over that. <laughs> well, do you, uh, well, for, I've been a pastor at Sanderville Church in Des Moines, Iowa, for the past twenty five years. Uh, I pastored previously in Northern Iowa before that. And I actually went and saw, I think you, Bill, at Triple Espresso in Des Moines just a few years ago. Wow. Were you there about four or five years ago? Well, the show ran there for about 10 years altogether, I think, off and on. So, yeah, it's been around a long time. That was fun. Oh, good. Glad you enjoyed it. And, uh, uh, I, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm interrupting. You go ahead. No, I, I want to get to the book. I, I find your topic... and. I didn't get a chance to read all of your book. I read the, the first uh, couple chapters, and I was riveted. Just so you know, I thought cool. uh, you've got uh, you've got a gift for uh, speaking and writing, and I'm really interested in hearing about uh, your experience. Would you tell us what prompted you to write this book? What prompted me to write the book, really, and, and I talk about you. You read the introduction. You caught that. It was about 12, 13 years ago. I was in Oregon. I was speaking at pastors and wives retreat and missionary and wives retreat. My wife and I were together and I had, I had cleared my calendar of all other speaking engagements that year because our two youngest boys, we have 10 children. Well, that's another story in and of itself. I, we, my wife and I are widow and widower, but our two youngest ones were just completely off the rails. I mean, utterly off the rails and breaking our hearts. And, uh, you know, we just made a commitment that we were just going to give our entire lives to communicating with them and doing the best we could to win them back. And so I canceled all of their extra speaking engagements, except for that one, which was uh, scheduled a few years earlier. So I did it. And when we went out there, we, our hearts were really heavy. And here we were supposed to be ministering to all these, uh, you know, fellow comrades in arms, so to speak. And, uh, you know, in our hearts, we thought, well, who's going to minister to us? And, uh, as we went out there, we just determined, you know, what's the worst that could happen? We're talking to our friends here. Uh, let's just 
be open with them during the Q and a time and just share the burdens that we had and, and uh, some of our own personal blunders and sins. We did that. And uh, wow, did it just opened up uh, not a can of worms, but a really can of blessings. People came, missionaries were coming to us, pastors were coming to us, thanking us for being transparent, uh, sharing with us their own kids who were out of sorts and some that had come back to the Lord. And it was through that whole process, Bill, that my wife and I looked at each other and we thought, you know, there's something beautiful, not just about being humble, but cultivating that humility by continually talking about the things that we've screwed up uh, over the years with and how we can uh, encourage others in the process. You know, maybe not to do what we've done, but how to uh, cultivate humility in their own lives. Yeah, that's important. Pat Nemers is my guest. His book is called Retractions, Cultivating Humility After Humiliation. So how does the word retractions fit into this? Well, it's kind of funny you should ask that because I actually had another publisher who wanted to do the book who wanted to change the title. They didn't like the title because it's just too obscure. And of course, that's the reason why I subtitled it Cultivating Humility After Humiliation, because that is the hook of the book. But retractions comes from Augustine, you know, our great church uh, father who uh, everyone who knows anything about theology knows that he wrote his famous Confessions. He wrote that when he was in his 40s or a younger man. But when he was 72 years old, he wrote a book called Retractions or Retractionaceous. The idea of the book, it, more, it was more like reconsiderations for him. But the idea was to, you know, in humility, acknowledge he might have been wrong on a couple of finer points of theology. And that whole concept just mesmerized me, intrigued me, and I thought, that's what we need more of. That whole business of acknowledging our failures, not just in the here and now, but past failures. And the idea is to keep on confessing them, not, not because we need to be further forgiven, but in order to be able to uh, encourage others to do the same, to cultivate humility in their own lives, and maybe help somebody else out in the process. Mm-hmm. Great answer, Pat. I'd love for you to talk about transparency, because I know it's one of those things where you, you, a person, a communicator, wants to use transparency to connect to an audience, um, but also you, you want to make sure that you're doing it in a way that is not transparency for transparency's sake. I mean, you want to make a point, but also show how God can use um, your experiences not only to humble you, but to encourage others. Yeah. Well, everybody wants to think they're transparent. Everybody wants to think they're authentic, and everybody likes to That's listen point. to and authentic people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in the at the end of the day, most people have a good enough crapometer. Sorry about that. Just you know, to be able to tell whether the guy's telling the truth. And uh, and so to be transparent is one thing. To be transparent unto the Lord, as unto the Lord, so that He might be, get the glory. What you know, Psalm one hundred thirty five. Verse 13 says, your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your fame, O Lord, to all generations. So it's the name and the fame of the Lord that's really at stake here. So when I'm transparent, it better not be, as you mentioned, Bill, just for transparent, just to be transparent. But because you want to, you want to, there's an end game here. There's, you want to cultivate humility, not only in your own life, but in your listeners' lives. Mm-hmm. Let's go to chapter two of your book, Pat, and how to eat crow. What was that all about? <laughs> <laughs> I like, well, that's I like great, that. I love the chapter. And the truth of the matter is uh, another publisher wanted to change the name of the, of the title of the book to how to eat crow when it's young and tender. 
Mm-hmm. I didn't like that. In fact, I, I thought that was as cheesy as you could possibly get. Mm-hmm. But but they were going off the story in that chapter. So what had happened in that chapter, uh, uh, I was in my first church. Uh, very, In fact, it was the very seriously built. It was the first message I ever preached before I became the pastor of the church. And it was the basis by which this church brought me on as their pastor. And I was preaching on Samuel and his, uh, you know, little Samuel, you know, and he's hearing God's voice. And he remember, he kept going to, you know, Eli and Eli kept saying to him, you know, hey, you know, go back to sleep and all of that. And anyway, it, but before that, uh, we're told that Samuel is about the age of three when he would have been uh, weaned. Uh, you know, it says that he worshiped the Lord. And when I preached that first message, I told these, you know, this little country church of maybe 30 or 40 people, I told them that if for Samuel to have worshiped the Lord, that means he knew the Lord. That means you can, you can know Jesus when you're, when you're even three years old. And I told the story of how my own daughter at age three had placed her faith in Jesus. And I mean, it was game, set, match. I mean, everybody was moved. It was really cool. I closed the message. I walked out on a cloud, you know, on a, you know, just, on a cloud, so to speak. Mm -hmm. I came back that night. I came back that night to speak at night. And an old guy by the name of George, uh, you know, stopped me as I was walking through. He's very complimentary about my message. And he said, "Uh, can I ask you about your message? I said, sure. And he pointed to the very next chapter where, where Samuel's being called to hear the voice of God. There's a little, there's a little parenthetical thought in there where it says at this time, Samuel did not know the Lord. (laughs) I've never seen that in the Bible. <laughs> it's like I, I'm staring right. It says it right there, mm-hmm. and uh, and I bumbled around and said something like, "Well, you know, I'm he must not have known him deeper or something." I, I just <laughs> I, I wish I I wish I had admitted it right there. I wish that I'd gone in the pulpit that night and admitted my mistake. I did not. I yeah. did not. And I'm ashamed of myself for that. And I remember being uh, really convicted about that, having done nothing about it. And several years later, in the church that I now pastor, it's probably 20-some years ago, or t- whatever, it doesn't matter, it was a long time ago, I preached a message where I made a, a really kind of a crass comment and shouldn't have made it. It wasn't, a, I, I didn't swear or anything like that, but it was one of those words, I used a word that just, you know, most young people would just dismiss and older people would think, oh my goodness, I can't believe you said that, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and I got some, I got some, yeah, I got some reverb from that. And so I wrote an email to the church family and asked them to forgive me for the comment that I made. And a, and a guy, a brand new Christian, in fact, wrote me an email in response. He said, hey, thanks for your email. I forgive you. I don't feel like you need to ask me to forgive you. But I just want you to know I, I admire you. He goes, I've always felt that crow is, uh, tastes best when it's uh, young and tender. <laughs> uh-huh. I, I'd never heard that. That was so good. And I, it, was, it was funny. But it was also powerful and very instructive to me. And I thought, that's right. When I realize that I have sinned against God, against an individual, or in this case, against congregation, that's when I need to acknowledge it. And that's, that's, that was the story in that chapter. Mm-hmm. What about in chapter four of your book, um, you talk about uh, the lure of legalism. And did you not have a guy come up to you after you had preached and said to you, Stick to the Bible sins, Pastor. There's plenty of them you can preach. <laughs> That's right. I did. And his name was Bill. He was one of my greatest fans, quote unquote. <laughs> uh huh. 
he was a Bible teacher himself and a really good one. Uh, he was a Bible guy. And, and, and quite frankly, Bill, that's, that's what I wanted to be was a Bible guy. In fact, I deemed myself as a, as a Bible guy. And, uh, but that, in those days, I, I was strong on everything, biblical and otherwise. I was strong on every extra biblical thing you can imagine, music, dress, and a half a dozen other things. And, uh, and on that particular day, Bill was such a Bible guy. And by the way, I talk about this in that chapter. I'd kind of amassed an army of, of followers that were kind of like me. They, they liked that, those, you know, taking those extra biblical strong stands, you know, and but on this day, I preached. I don't know if it was on music. I don't know what it was, but I went off. And when I got done, I was standing at the door, and people were coming through, and I was getting a bunch of attaboys. Uh, and Bill, again, one of my greatest encouragers, went, walked by me, and he had a sternness about him that I'd never seen before. And I went to shake his hand. And he did shake my hand, but he looked, he looked me right in the eye, and he said, just what you said. He said, stick to the Bible sins, Pastor. There's plenty of them you can preach. And I'm, I'm telling you, Bill, it was like a sword going right through my heart. Uh, I began, I mean, I thought, why, why don't you just commend me for the great exposition I just laid out there? Mm-hmm. And uh, instead, he, and I, and I started saying, I kind of got defensive, and he looked back at me and said, stick, he just repeated himself, stick with the Bible's sins, Pastor. There, there's lots of them you can preach. And of course he was right. Uh, and uh, so that whole chapter is dedicated to the lure of legal. Our human nature wants to add to the Bible. I mean, would you acknowledge that? I mean, our human nature wants to go further than what God wants it to go. And uh, the whole purpose of that chapter is to stay within the confines of the Word of God. I think it was John MacArthur who said that a human standard can be more restrictive than the Word of God or more lenient than the Word of God, but it can never be better than the Word of God. Mm. I love that. Yes. I love that. So good. Pat Nembers is my guest. His book is called Retractions, Cultivating Humility After Humiliation. We're going to take a little break. We'll be right back with more with Pat. If you have a question or comment, you can text it over, 877-933-2484. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting myfaithradio.com. Pat Nemers is my guest. He's the lead pastor at Sailorville Church in Des Moines, Iowa. And he is, uh, got saved working at the John Deere tractor manufacturer. He heard the gospel and shortly trusted Christ as his personal Lord and Savior. What a great story. <laughs> so he's also the author of a book called Retractions, Cultivating Humility After Humiliation. So, uh, Pat, curious when you suffer some humiliation and God delivers some humility into your life. Uh, how long do you uh, have it in your life, and how often does it come back to sort of kick you in the shins, and uh, are you able to uh, put it behind you, or does it surface again? 
Well, if you're a guy like me, I mean, if you you read a couple of chapters, and my first one was having uh, you know the, you know zeal without knowledge. So <laughs> I, I'm those guys who watch all the time, and yeah. uh, so type type A type of guy, and so um, you know I'm bound to make mistakes as is anybody. But again, the whole premise of the book, Bill, is that just because we have you know it's, it's one thing to recognize your sins and your blunders uh, and your faux pas, whatever and ask, ask for forgiveness of someone, certainly of the Lord. It's another thing to keep on confessing them. In other words, I think it's important that why we don't want to become voyeuristic, you know, we don't want to get real lurid or anything like that. I think we should continue to confess, <clears throat> excuse me, our, our sins that we've already been forgiven of. Uh, that reminds us of who we are, it reminds us of our human nature, it, it, it cultivates humility in our own lives, and it will also help to cultivate hum- humility in other people's lives. So, yeah, it, it'll continue, and, and I still make blunders. I always tell people I'm not sinless, but as I grow in the Lord, I do sin less. <laughs> yeah. Like, so. Yeah, amen to that. Let's go to chapter 8, how to see in the dark. Explain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's the chapter that, uh, without exception, I can't— I, I haven't talked to one person who's read that chapter that didn't either fight back or just let cut loose with lots of tears. Oh, wow. So it's about as deep and as transparent as any chapter in the entire book. It, uh, it very, it very uh, vividly describes the death of my first wife, Nina, mm-hmm. who was the love of my life. And we were married for 16 years and had seven children. Wow. And our and our very first church uh, had grown exponentially. It was a church out in the out in the country, and uh, we'd quadrupled in size. And we built. A, we were in the midst of building a brand new facility. It wasn't done yet, and we weren't borrowing any money. It was a really cool testimony. People in the community were talking about it. We, everything was a buzz, and I mean, really, I wouldn't say that our lives were idyllic, but really close. Okay, and uh, in the middle of all that, uh, on. I got a phone call one day and uh, from somebody whose dad was dying and, and they wanted me to pray for him. And I did, but I said, Hey, have you shared, shared the gospel with your dad? The person hadn't done that. And I kind of lovingly chastised them to say that, you know, you know, you don't, you don't know what a day may bring forth. You need to tell them about Jesus. And uh, I hung up the phone and three or four hours later, that very scripture came to rest upon me as my wife of 16 years who gave me those seven children. Uh, we were sitting 1130 at night in, and, uh, she gasped and, uh, had a heart attack and died in my arms. And, um, there was no precursor to it, no history, nothing in a heartbeat. Literally she was gone. And I, my kids were ages 14 down to one, just weaned from his mom a week earlier. And so in a heartbeat, literally our lives were turned upside down. And I write in the book and in that chapter, uh, the hardest thing I've ever had to do to this day. And I've had a lot of hard things, but the Tuesday was to tell my children that their mommy was gone. And, uh, and I write about that. And my 14 year old, particularly my oldest was the first one I talked to. I actually woke her up and I describe how that took place. And, you know, I, even to be candid, when I read that part of the book, I, I, I shed tears every time because I relive it. I'm not surprised. I so pathetic, her just crying out, oh, mommy, oh, mommy. And uh, so, mm. but that's not, 
but that's not really the point of the chapter, mm-hmm. although that's the part that brings a lot of people to tears. The, the truth of the matter is God would use that young lady, my daughter now over 40, and, uh, and another preacher, to really reveal to me my lack of compassion. Now, I've been a pastor for uh, a dozen years or so, and if you had asked me, Bill, I would tell you I was compassionate. I led people to death's door. I, you know, seen babies nearly die at birth. I helped a lot of people through sicknesses. But the truth of the matter is I, I didn't have the kind of empathy that God wanted me to have. And I am convinced that one of the reasons that the Lord took the love of my life out of my life was to break me and humble me and show me my need to be a more compassionate man. And, um, you know, by the grace of God, that is, that is, uh, happened. The apostle Paul says in Romans 15, I will not dare to speak of any of those things, which Christ has not accomplished through me, both in word and in deed. And, uh, you know, I think it was D.L. Moody who said the, the great sin of his day was people who were trafficking in unlived truth. Well, that, you know, I, I, I just was not a compassionate person as much as I thought I, I was. And uh, the death of my wife and was how God allowed me to see in the darkness my own sin of a lack of compassion. And he made me, by his grace, a more compassionate person as a result. Wow, Pat. I, I think you've got a wife and seven kids. There would have to be some compassion around the household. Um, because there's so many uh, needy kids wanting dad and telling yeah. dad their concerns and problems and, and heartache. And I would think that the natural inclination would be to be full of compassion, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but I appreciate that vulnerability. That's a lot of transparency. And, and I, 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 I suffer along hearing that story with you. So thank you for sharing well, that. You're welcome. You know, I am, a, I'm one of the, I'm a truth teller. I mean, that's the way I'm wired. And I'm not saying I didn't have compassion. It just wasn't at the level that it needed to be as a pastor and even as a human being, as a, as a, as a follower of Jesus. And I'm grateful to God because a few years later, God brought another a widow, a widow into my life. And we've been married for 26 years. Wow. We didn't have any more kids, but we've got a ton of grandkids. I can tell you that. <laughs> uh, seems that the, the running, the running count is about 28 right now. <laughs> the running count is 37. I okay. have 37 grandkids. All right. You've got to update your bio, Pat, <laughs> on the church website. The church website says 28. It does? Yeah. That, that's not, I'll, I'll, I'll get right at that, Bill. Yeah. It says 28 and counting. So yeah, we got to get that updated. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah. So in your, in your, in your book, uh, Retractions, and I know you've got it set up. So at the end of each chapter, we can spend some time studying scripture and doing some meditating. We've already talked about meditation once today. Let's continue that discussion and how important it is. Bill, thanks for bringing that up. I really, really appreciate that. You're right. At the end of every chapter, I have a little segment called Cultivating Humility. And in that, I have just, I'm leading the reader into the text of scripture that will help them to cultivate humility in their lives uh, uh, along the lines of the retraction that is written about in that chapter. So the book itself is, is not an autobiography, but it's autobiographical. So it's a fast read, but it's not an easy read. I even talk about having to confess my own infidelity uh, 
there's a chapter you haven't gotten to yet, but there's a chapter titled A Valentine's Day Confession. That's a very powerful chapter that will be probably very convicting to the reader, to some, not all, uh, who have uh, maybe tucked away uh, an infidelity in their lives in the past and they've asked for forgiveness and, you know, it's just, you know, all under the blood, so to speak, but they may need to address that. And I talk about how to do that. Uh, especially in those uh, in the section called uh, cultivating humility, I do that in every chapter, though. Mm-hmm. So it's a en- encouraging book, and when everybody um, thinks we've got um, we've got this whole humility thing figured out, we get another something handed to us. That seems yeah. the way it always works. Um, yeah. But when people realize that um, God does some really amazing work through. Uh, humbling us it's a it's a beautiful beautiful thing to realize mm-hmm. yes it is amen yeah amen, Bill. yeah so uh interesting book thank you for uh writing it and sharing it with us and my listening audience today uh easiest way to grab a copy of this is how uh the easiest way to grab a copy of retractions cultivating humility after humiliation is to go to amazon amazon okay. has it it's right there and if your readers will get it, I'd love to have them buy it and write a review. Love to have them do that, too. Sweet, sweet. Well, I appreciate the subject, and I appreciate how you handled it. And it's just been a delight meeting you. Thank you very much, Pat Nemers. Likewise, Bill. Thank you so very, very much. God you bless bet. you. You bet. Have a great rest of your day. All right. That, again, uh, Pat Nemers is my guest, and the name of his book was called Retractions. Um, and if you are are in a situation where you've been... Uh, humbled by something, this might be a really lovely book uh, for you to go through and study the meditations at the end and study the scriptures that are come along with it um, and cultivate humility. What a great, great message. We're going to take a break. When we come back, our friend Carrie Headington is going to join us for a full hour. We're going to talk about the beautiful words of Jesus, and that's all ahead. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.